Well, it's very good to be here this morning. I appreciate your presence, and I hope that as we go through our study this morning that, that you can take something from this, that you can um, apply this. I, I think it's a very applicable lesson. Last week, as Trevor spoke on pain and suffering, I got to thinking about it, and there's been a lot of people in here that have been through pain and suffering recently. And I want you to think about in your life, have you been through pain and suffering recently? Heartache after heartache, pain after pain, trial after trial, and sometimes it just doesn't seem to get any better. And I thought about kind of in my life, two years ago, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. My granddad passed away from COVID. My dad got leukemia. My brother-in-law got hit by a drunk driver. Just one thing after another, trial after trial. And that happens in life. That's part of life. And it's a terrible place to be. And at some point, if you haven't felt this way, you're probably going to feel that way. And I've heard this feeling, this, this joyless, this unhappy, this just trial after trial, depressed state being compared to being in a cave, a place known for being dark, a place known as being lonely, where you just don't feel like you can get out of it. And so... You probably remember back in 2018, uh, the kids from Thailand, they get done with their soccer practice and they want to have a good time, so they go into this cave and they get stuck there. These rains, just these tremendous rains start coming and they get pushed further and further and further back into this cave. Eventually, they're two and a half miles into this cave, dark and lonely. I mean, you can only imagine how dark and lonely that is. They're there for 17 days. They're probably feeling depressed. They're probably feeling anxious. They're probably feeling just depressed and sad. And it took immense amount of people, immense amount of efforts, over a thousand people to get these kids out of this cave. And Brad Peters said this about being in this joyless and depressed state. He said, the further they linger, the, the further they go inside the cave, the longer they linger. The more isolated they become from the outside world and the more difficult it is to face it again. They separate themselves from the dangers but also for the potential for hope and a life worth living. And I think that's why this joyless and depressed state can be compared to being in a cave, just because it's hard to get out. And when you're at the bottom of this cave, it's hard to imagine how you're ever going to see the light again. And so I want th- this morning, I want you to understand that there's a godly way to go through trials. There's a godly way to go through temptations and find your way out of whatever cave you might be in. So this morning, I want to talk about perspective. We're going to talk about the fact that as a Christian, you are going to face trials. It is expected. It's something that's going to happen. And during this time, during this trial or heartache or suffering or whatever it is, you need to be honest with God You need to have the right perspective, and you need to realize that your pain is going to produce a heavenly reward. And with that in mind, you can make it through whatever whatever trial you're going through. And I know Trevor talked about pain and suffering last week, and I know he talked about Job, but there's no way to talk about perspective without talking about Job. And so I want to do that just briefly this morning. And you think about Job, if anyone in the Bible could be described as being in a cave of despair, it's Job. I mean, he went through it, heartache after heartache, trial after trial, more than probably anyone in the Bible. And in chapter 1, we're introduced to Job as a blameless man, a man that's honest, a man that's God-fearing. He was so God-fearing that 
in the case that his children might have sinned at the parties that they were attending, he would offer sacrifice for his children. Not only is he offering sacrifice for himself, but he's offering sacrifices for his kids just in case. That's how fearful of God he was. And in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 6, we're introduced to this court scene. And God is there, and God is surrounded by all of his servants, and Satan, or the accuser, is also there. And God points out Job, and he, he kind of holds Job up, and he says, have y'all seen Job? Have you really seen how good this man is, how God-fearing and honest this man is, almost as a way to bait Satan, and it, and it works. And in ch- uh, chapter 1, verse 10, Satan says, have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. And so Satan says, really, the reason that, that Satan or that Job trusts you is because you've never given, given him a reason not to trust you. And so, of course, he's going to trust you. He's never not had a reason to trust you. And so, basically, Satan says, let him suffer, and then he's going to turn away. And you don't like to think about Satan being right, but in this case, he was. He's got humanity pegged. Because what do we do when, when heartache comes, when trials come? Why would God allow this to happen? We complain. Satan knows that's how we respond. And when things are going great, when, when we have all that we need, when our possessions are great, when we have money, when we have family, and when we have wealth, we praise God for that. But when things go south and we lose our health and we lose our money and we lose everything, we want to complain to God and complain about God and question him. So things have not changed since Job. Job's response after all of his family has been taken away, after he's gone through pain and suffering and loss, is naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so this is initially Job's reaction. And you can see how positive he is about this and how how you can see how God-fearing he remains and hopeful in that response. But the wheels fall off of this pretty quickly. And I think Job realizes what his new normal is going to be. In chapter 2, Job's health is taken away. And these painful boils come on his body. And his health just deteriorates rapidly. And as we go through the book of Job and, and we see this back and forth between Job and his friends... At some point, Job has started to complain, and word has gotten to Elihu, one of his other friends, that Job's been complaining. Elihu quotes Job as saying, yet he finds occasion against me, talking about God, he counts me as his enemy. And so Job is saying, God thinks that he's my enemy. And that's a far cry from the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And I think that's because Job has settled into this new normal of my body hurts, I've lost everything. That's how it's going to be from here on out. How do I get out of this? Because it's just suffering. It's just agony. And Job was in this depressed state. And then a few chapters later, this massive whirlwind, this massive tornado comes, and God speaks to Job from this tornado. And you can't imagine how fearful Job probably was. And imagine being in that spot and, God in verse 3 says, Job, answer me like a man. And I don't know if you've ever had anybody tell you to answer you like a man or answer them like a man, but you think about a high school coach saying, be a man. 
And that was scary. Imagine God saying that from a tornado. That would put the fear of the living God into you, literally. And God goes on to say in verse 4, he goes through these different things. He says, Job, where were you when I formed the earth? Did you place it there? He says, Job, I control the stars. I put them in its place. I control all the different constellations. I control the eagles. I control behemoth. I control Leviathan. That happens in chapter 39. These, these creatures were known for being just massive and uncontrollable and strong and powerful. No one could control them, but God says, I control them. I made them, and I control them. And Job's response to that is, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. And that really puts Job in his his place. And you can see the wisdom that Job gained and the perspective change that Job was able to obtain by going through these trials and by God showing him, who are you? And that's what God says in, in, in chapter 38 and verse 1. When we go through terrible problems, when we go through pain and suffering, we can get this perspective. And I like the imagery there at the end. Job says, I place my hand over my mouth. He's speechless. He has nothing to say before God. That's how much of a perspective change that Job was able to get. And I want to look at someone next who had the proper perspective, but it took him a minute to get there. And that's King David. And we're going to see a king, as we go through this, we're going to see a king handle heartache, a king handle suffering and pain, and get through it because he had the right, proper perspective. So in 1 Samuel, Samuel goes to David at 13 years old, and he anoints him as king. And basically saying, you're going to be king one day. God has blessed you, and you're going to be king at some point. He was favored by God. And the day that Samuel found him, he anointed him as king. And from then on, life goes great for David. Just things just keep getting better and better and better for David. He becomes Saul's harp player. Saul was was depressed, and he needed someone to come and play a harp for him. And so David was chosen to do this. And so David goes from playing his harp to his sheep to playing his harp in front of the most important man in all of Israel. And next, he kills Goliath. He's on the He's taking cheese, literal cheese, to his brothers and to the captains of this army in Israel when he kills Goliath. And so overnight, he becomes a superstar. And people are singing about him. People are praising him. He went from being just the shepherd of sheep to savior of a nation just overnight. And suddenly people are, are just, they can't get enough of David and life is great for him. He becomes, son, he, he becomes best friends with Jonathan, who was Saul's son, and so best friends of the king's son. He becomes a high-ranking military official where he's leading all kinds of people, all kinds of military personnel. People love him. Military officials, they love him. Servants, they love him. Everyone loves David. He marries the king's daughter. He's a step away from royalty when he marries Michael. Everyone loves David except Saul. Saul hates David. And you probably remember the story um, of Saul trying to to capture and kill David. And people are singing. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And that really, really irritates Saul. 
That makes Saul so jealous that Saul just, he makes it policy to try and kill David. And he, twice he tries to spear him to a wall. And David um, escapes from that. And Saul makes it his purpose to kill David. His jealousy has become pure hatred. And he does everything he can to try and, and capture him. And David's told to run. All of a sudden, these military officials who you're commanding and your lead over, now they're trying to kill you. And so David has to run, and his wife, Michael, helps him create this escape plan where he packs all his stuff, he gets out the window. Later, we find out, though, that she gave up David to Saul and said, well, he was going to kill me if, if I didn't let him go. Later, we find out that she marries another man, so he no longer has his wife. And David runs to the priest for help. And these priests who try to help him, Saul finds out about this, and Saul kills the priests because of this, because they were trying to help David. And then David runs to his enemies in Gath. And if you don't know who Gath is, this is where Goliath was from. This was capital of the Philistines. And so David runs to his enemies, people who hated him, just because of how fearful he was of Saul and how, how bad Saul was trying to kill him. Imagine being in this position. Everyone loves you. Everyone wants to be you. Everyone's singing about you. And you've got nowhere to go. You're just running for your life. And in this instant, in Gath, he has to act like a madman. He has to act crazy just so he can escape from his enemies because they realize that this is the guy who killed our mighty warrior Goliath. And so he has to act crazy and he gets out of there. And the next verse after that, is in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David therefore departed from there, from Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So up to this point, David has lost his career. He's no longer this, this military official who, has, who can uh, command these, these big armies. He's lost his wife. His wife is now married to another man. He's lost his home. He's had to run from his home and escape. He's lost his best friend, Jonathan, who he sees two more times and then gets killed in battle. He's going to lose his, his mentor, Samuel, who anointed him, who he trusts. He'll see him one more time. And he loses his self-respect as he has to act insane and like a madman just so he can get away from the, the greatest enemy that he's ever known. And he escapes to this cave. He goes to the cave of Adullam. And he went from living in a castle, being next to royalty, to living in a cave something known for being dark, for being desolate, for being lonely. And so he's gone from this high, this tremendous high in life, to this tremendous low in just a matter of a very short time. And I think depression and anxiety start to set in. And the nice thing about going through a chronological Bible is you can see, so at 1 Samuel, we can see what's happening in Psalms. We can see what David is thinking about while he's going through that. And so Psalms chapter 142 and Psalms chapter 57, those pair with 1 Samuel chapter 22. And so we can see exactly what David was thinking when he was in, in this cave. And so we can see how a, a king handles heartache, how a king handles anxiety and loss and depression. And I want to tell you, it doesn't start great. First, or Psalms chapter 142 verses 1 and 2, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. And you can see David getting, getting honest with God, and he's getting 
real. He's showing God his emotions. He says, I cry, I pour, I complain before God. This is desperate. This is real. When was the last time that you prayed like this? When you cried before, the, before God? When you were honest with him like this? This doesn't look like the cookie-cutter prayer that sometimes I pray. This is, this is desperate. And so I think when we get into trial and heartache and problems in our life, we need to look to this as an example for how to talk to God. He goes on in verse 4. He says, Look on my right hand and see, for there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. You can see the despair in his voice. And the thing about this is, is you can't have a relationship with someone if you don't get honest with them. David can't have a relationship with God if he's not honest with God, if he doesn't acknowledge his situation that he's in. And he does that. He's honest with God. Be authentic with God. And you can see how hurt he is in verse 4. But as you read, as we go from verse 4 to verse 5, you can really see his perspective change. In verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. And you can see that perspective change from my enemies are all around me to you're my refuge. You're the God that I want to serve. And you can see how David is done complaining and he's praising God now. He understands that God is going to take care of him. So the cave of Adullam, when you look at the translation of Adullam, Adullam means refuge, cave of refuge. And so David, I don't know if he realized it when he was going to this cave, but he was going there for refuge. He was seeking this cave for refuge, thinking that this cave was his refuge. And in Psalms chapter 57, another psalm that parallels with 142, David says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadows of your, shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God most high, to God, to God who performs all things for me. And so David has gone to this cave seeking refuge in this cave, but he knows his actual refuge is in Christ or is in, is in God. And God, I think David realized in this situation that God uses pain to create perspective. And you can see the perspective change in, God, in David as pain becomes praise here in verse 5. He says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit for me. Into the midst of, the, of it they themselves have fallen. Salah, my heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And you can really see his mood shift. He goes from this depressed state where these enemies are all around me. They're capturing me. They've dug pits for me to praise. I'm going to get my harp out, and I'm going to wake the morning up. I'm going to, I'm going to praise God regardless of what's going on. And you can see it shift from depression to praise. And this all started because David was honest with God. He was honest about his situation 
And his perspective drastically changed when he realizes that God is his refuge. And I don't know what your suffering looks like. I don't know what your pain looks like. I don't know what your trials in life look like right now. But God can use your pain to develop you and to, to complete you and to mature you. And I, don't, and I know that James understood this because we're going to look at James chapter 1. And he wrote this letter to the 12 churches. And that's what chapter 1 is about. Is about going through trials, going through heartache, going through pain to become a more complete Christian. And this will be the last thing that we look at this morning. James chapter 1, starting in verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various temptations or various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And so trials are anything that can produce pain, anything in life that can test you, anything that can cause heartache, just anything that's a problem in life. And generally, it's things that are outside of your control. It's nothing that you have caused. Sometimes it is, though. So you think about death. You think about sickness. You think about losing your job. You think about being stuck in a cave for 17 days. Those are all different trials. But it can be as simple as just your plane being four hours late. Whatever it is, Anything in life that tests you is a trial. And James says you're going to expect it or expect that you're going to go through this. And he says trials. He doesn't say trial. It's plural. You're going to go through many of these things. Sometimes many of these things are going to be happening at one time where you're going through trial after trial after trial all together. So not only is your plane four hours late, but your bag didn't make it on the plane, and you wait on your bag so long that the rental car place shuts up and, and you don't have a ride for the night. Just trial after trial after trial that's going to test you. He also says when, when you fall. It's expected. As a Christian, you are going to go through trials. It's not if, it's when. And as a Christian, I think we should even expect more that we're going to go through it more than just the, the regular person. You may suffer more because of your faith, and there's no such thing as a prosperity doctrine. By coming to Christ, in no way does that exempt you from going through the problems of life. And he says, when you fall, and fall in this sense makes me realize how significant this is, how dangerous it is to sometimes fall into these, this pain, into these trials, into these uh, these sufferings or whatever. It's not meant to be taken lightly. This word fall is used only two other times in the entire New Testament. The first one is in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. It says, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And so the first instance that we see this word fall uses is when this guy is beaten almost to death. He's fallen into these, these robbers who, are, who try and kill him. That's the word that James chooses when he talks about the trials that we're going to go through. The other one is in Acts chapter 27. It says, In falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And so the other imagery that we have is the ship falling into two different seas that are just colliding and banging and, and beating this ship to the point where it breaks, and the back half of it breaks off. And James is trying to tell us that, that the temptations, the trials, the pain, the suffering, the heartache, they're going to try and do that. They're going to try and break you. But when that happens, count it all joy. And 
that seems kind of crazy. Why in the world would you count it joy when you go through this, when you're among robbers who try and beat you and break you, and you're in this ship, and this ship is breaking apart, and you're trying to be broken through this trial? Why would you count that joy? Why celebrate when you're in pain? And I think the the response to that is someone who knows something. That's who can celebrate when they go through pain and be happy about it. You can have joy because you know something. You have to know that your pain and suffering is going to produce a benefit. And in verse 4, he answers what that benefit is. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So your trial, your pain, your suffering, that's going to complete you. As you go through that, as you go through that test and come out of that test, it's going to mature you. It's going to complete you. And you have to have the proper perspective with the end result in mind. And that's this, that you're going to be completed, that you're going to be a more perfect Christian. If you don't grow in your abilities, you're not going to be a complete Christian. And you, you look at the, the life of Job. If Job hasn't, hadn't gone through this tremendous suffering of losing his family and losing all of his stuff and losing his health, his perspective might not have changed to realize how insignificant he truly was. You think about David. If David hadn't gone from this low to high to high to low state, he wouldn't have realized how much he needed God to be his refuge and how much his perspective wouldn't have changed. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You aren't going to know how to handle every trial. And I, I think that, that God, I know God understands that. You, you see the billboard or the, the bumper sticker that says, God will never give you more than you can handle. And that's simply not true. God will, and God expects you when you're going through that trial and you don't know how to handle it, that you can talk to him, that you can ask him for wisdom and he'll show you how to handle it. Ask for wisdom, and he'll give it to you liberally. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You can't have it both ways. You can't trust God when things are going good and not trust him when things are going bad and going south. And he uses this word double-minded, and that's the only place in the Bible that this word double-minded is used. And it's, it's representative of someone who's trying to do one thing on one hand but not doing the same thing in, the, in a different situation. We can't be double-minded. We need to fully commit to God when life is good, when we've got everything that we need, and when life is bad and we're going through it and we're in this pit of despair and depressed. James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11 Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as the flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. And so James compares this rich man to a flower. And you think about a flower, and the beauty of a flower is what makes it valuable. When the sun comes out, though, and it destroys this flower and it makes it not beautiful anymore and it takes away all of its beauty, it withers and dies, and therefore it's no longer valuable. And that's what James says about this rich man who who puts so much hope in riches, 
that whenever the trials of life come and they take that away and his identity is no longer there and they, his identity is taken away, he's no longer of value. And so the same thing said about us, as the sun comes out and beats down on us and takes away our stuff, what does our identity look like? In your life, you may be holding on to money. And if you lose your job today or tomorrow, what does your identity still like, look like? What's your perspective look like? Does that change you in any way? If you lose all your hope and joy when possessions are gone, you need a perspective change. You think about your hair, and through the New Testament, the hair is used a lot as, as something valuable. And women, if you were to lose all of your hair tomorrow, would that discourage you, discourage you or would that devastate you? If you're devastated, then that means you're probably putting too much value on physical appearance. Don't put your, the weight of your soul on something that fades, such as possessions or money or physical looks or whatever it is. God is going to put us in situations to show us that. He's gonna put us in trials that show us and expose what our deficiencies are, what we hold on to the most to show us what we need to give up and loosen our grip on. You need to switch your perspective to what matters most. And James does that in verse chapter, or chapter 1, verse 12, the next verse. He says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation or endures trials. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's what matters. For you to get through the cave, to, to come out of the, that cave, and to have hope again, you've got to have hope in this. You've got to realize the promise of God that promise that you will receive a crown of life. James knew it when he wrote this. Peter knew it, like we talked about last week. Paul knew it. All these different people, they understood that, and they went through trials. They went through problem after problem after problem, and they emerged, and they knew it, and they were able to do that because of the crown of life that they were going to be given. Go ahead and get your songbooks out, and turn to 504. It's a song that that Seth led, and he didn't know that he was messing me up. 504. So back in the 1800s, 1871, um, Horatio Spafford was a very successful man. He really had everything going for him. He was very wealthy. He had um, five kids. He had a loving wife. He had all kinds of real estate in Chicago, um, and he had a very successful law practice. And the problem, though, and you've probably heard of the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871, this fire comes and it strikes down all of his investment properties. So overnight, he loses everything. I mean, he goes from being very wealthy to very poor very quickly. Very soon after that, his son catches scarlet fever and dies. And so as a way to get his family out of this and to, to get them on a vacation, he sends his wife and his four daughters to England so that they can have vacation and that he's going to meet them there uh, soon after that. The problem was in the middle, on the way to the, in the middle of the Atlantic Sea, their ship hit another ship and his wife and four daughters were in that ship and his four daughters drowned and died. And his wife survived and made it all the way to Wales where she wrote this telegram to her husband, Horatio, and she said, saved alone what shall I do? And so Horatio boards a ship to go to her. And on the way over there, as he's crossing the Atlantic, 
the ship captain comes to Horatio and he says, this is where your daughters died. This is where they're buried. And at that moment, Horatio wrote a poem. And the first lines of that poem were, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And that's where that song came from. And it, you think about that. You go through losing all of your stuff. You go through losing your son. You go through losing your daughters. You've got to have immense perspective to be able to say, it is well with my soul. Whatever's going on in, in your life, if you have the proper perspective, you can get through that trial. You can get through that heartache. Understand that at some point, as a Christian, you're going to go through a trial. You're going to go through pain. You're going to go through loss of a loved one, loss of a spouse, loss of a friend. And that's what happened to Jesus. Jesus went through pain and suffering. When he lost Lazarus, Lazarus he wept. Even though he had the proper, I mean, perfect eternal perspective, he still was sad. But there's purpose in the death of Lazarus, and there can be purpose when we go through trials. And, and you think about Jesus' suffering on the cross. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he still went through pain. He still went through suffering. He enters his cave when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And his mental anguish is just immense. And you can see as his, his sweat becomes literal drops of blood. And that's something that's seen only in people that are on death row, people that know that they're about to die. And it shows you how, how terrible their mental anguish is. And in this moment when Christ is here, he gets honest with God. He says, God, if there's any other way, let's do it that way. But then he also prays if it's your will. Not, your, not my will, but your will be done. He had the proper perspective. Suffering is hard, but we have a God who understands what suffering is. He became sin for us. And our last verse we're going to read, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He despised it. He hated that he had to do it, but he did it anyway. He endured it. He sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus used his pain his suffering for our purpose, the purpose of God to establish his church, allow us to, to be with him, allow us to, as we read earlier, have a crown of life. And so during heartache and trial, I want you to change your perspective. I want you to be honest with God, and I want you to realize that you will receive a crown of life whenever you get through that trial. If the church can do anything for you this morning, we're going to offer an invitation song. Let's go ahead and lead 504 if you don't mind. I think that the words of that really go well with, with, this, with this sermon. Um, if the church can help you in any way this morning, we'd love to do that. If you need help um, changing your perspective, sometimes that's not easy to do. If you want to study the Bible, if we can pray for you in some way, or if you realize that you need Christ in your life and you need to have that perspective in your life, the church would love to help you with that this morning as we stand and sing.